0: The next batch of Lord's Days and questions deal with why did the Savior have to be God and man? Why wasn't it enough for Jesus to be one or the other? Why did he have to be God and man? And we've talked about the law and our coming under the condemnation of the law because we couldn't keep it and we've talked about total depravity that therefore because of the effect of that sin and God's holiness in contrast there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It can't be done. And so the next rounds of questions sort of dig into, well, what can be done to save us? What is required to save us? And what it's going to, the conclusion that this will all lead to is that Jesus had to be God and man. So you think about like question 12, since we deserve this punishment, is there any way that we can escape what we deserve? And where the answer begins, answer 12, is God will have his justice satisfied. And that's a really important gut check for us. (laughs) Because a lot of people who want to believe about God, imaginations from their own minds rather than what God has said in his word, this is a fork in the road. How important is God's justice? And really, an underlying question is how important is his holiness? And because there's no such thing as partial holiness, he is holy, morally perfect. Can he be indifferent about sin? No. Can he say, well, sin isn't that big a deal? No. Can he say, well, you're sorry you're so I'll pretend that there's no cons- consequences or punishment for this? No. His justice must be satisfied. And so then the catechism asks, all right, well, can we satisfy that debt? And of course, it uses the great biblical phrase, by no means. <laughs> nope. Not gonna happen. And in fact, do y'all notice answer 13? What's the second part of answer 13? By no means, and then what does it say? Yeah, every day it gets bigger. Every day I add to that debt. Every day I could take, I think, I could take some junk off the scales, but I can't. I just shovel more on. Isn't that your experience? All right, 14, can there be anywhere a mere creature able to satisfy this for us? No. Why not? Well, two reasons, really. One is, you can't punish goat kind for the sins of mankind and get anywhere in a moral and just universe. And second, there's no man or creature that has the ability to die for anyone's sins except their own. So when you think about the way justice should work, that there has to be a like-for-like substitute. You, you can't even atone for your own sins. So you think you're going to atone for somebody else's? So no, that won't work either. And then it says all right 15 what manner of mediator and deliverer deliverer deliverator mediator and deliverer must we seek one who is a true and righteous man yet more powerful than all creatures that is one who is with all true god So we think of god pr- first in terms of his mercy and this idea that god should be able to just let his justice go that that if god I mean, isn't he supposed to be merciful? Isn't he supposed to be gracious? So maybe God just needs to lighten up and be okay with this sin and, and just acknowledge that we're all doing the best we can down here. But the moment you say that, God is no longer holy or just. You, you cannot uh, steal from one attribute in order to lift up another. God is perfect in all of his attributes. And so the truth is, in a moral universe... Because God is holy and just, there is not one single sin that will not be paid for in full. You ever think about that? There is not one single sin. There are no swept under the rug sins. There are no ignored sins. There is not one single sin that is not paid for. It will either be paid for by the sinner or dot, dot, dot. That's what these questions are about. Did you have a question? I always wouldn't say that. I was going to say that. My question was the third, fourth yeah. generation, because it references it fairly often. Anyway, what that means. Let me tie that in. We got the, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, yeah, we will get there. This is not a fun thing to dwell on, okay? The idea that all sins will be paid for, the idea that um, that there's no other out is not fun. But it is controversial in the modern world, and it's even controversial in the modern church. And so we need to spend a couple minutes just thinking about how we know that that's true. Two things. One is that scripture tells us plainly that there is eternal punishment for some. There are other views of hell that have popped up over the few thousand years of the church of people trying to, do anything they can to get away from this idea of eternal punishment. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's annihilationism. The, the, those who are not in Christ, those who will not turn to him for forgiveness of sins, they get all their punishment at once, and then they cease to exist. Because God would never make anyone suffer eternally. What's the problem with that? It's not what scripture says. Read Matthew 25. Do you know who talks more in the Bible about eternal punishment than anyone else? Jesus. Jesus talks more about eternal punishment than anyone else. And that's the Savior who came to to lay down his life for others. The second thing that makes it clear that every sin must be paid for is that Jesus died. What does uh, Romans eight thirty two say? Was that who has that? Who has Romans? Did I give anybody Romans? Sounds not like the thing I would do. Can you Andrew, can you turn to Romans eight? Thirty two. If it were, do you believe the Father loves the Son? I hope you believe that. That's pretty important. You believe the Father has loved the Son eternally? You believe the Father loves the Son in in a deeper type of love than we have ever tasted? Do you believe that if it was possible? To save his people from their sins, and to spare the son. The father would have put him on a cross anyway. No. If it was possible to save his people and to spare his son, he would have spared his son. But he did not spare his own son. Why not? It wasn't possible. Every single sin must be paid for. The wrath of God in his holiness must, for the sake of justice, be poured out in its fullness. Otherwise, God ceases to be God. He's certainly not holy. He's certainly not just. He's not even kind. He's just nicer. <laughs> Does that distinction make a difference? Right? And so the Bible teaches plainly that this must be the case. Either we have to satisfy God's justice ourselves or someone else will have to do it for us. But it must be done. By the way, why must it be eternal? God is eternal. No finite being can ever do an act that repays an infinite God. Suffering has to be eternal for the reprobate because they never get out of that debt. There's nothing the finite being can offer that satisfies what they've done against an eternal God. That's a little more on the logical philosophical side, but if you're normally when you're arguing about the eternality of hell in the first place, you're arguing with somebody who took a college philosophy class and just, well, that's all I'll say about that. Kids, if any of you go on to be philosophy majors, I've insulted them several times from the pulpit of my teaching. I I have a degree in philosophy as well. It doesn't have to make you insane. (laughs) No, judgment. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah animal sacrifices were they enough to pay for man's sin no who's got Hebrews 2 that's you isn't it Olivia can you read 2 14 through 17 Thank you. So why wouldn't animal sacrifices work? The same reason angelic sacrifices wouldn't have worked. They're not humans. I'm going to use the word men a lot. I mean males and females. I mean mankind. They're not man. Animals can't atone for the sins of man. Angels can't atone for the sins of man. We're the only ones of whom Scripture says we are made in the image of God. There is something about us that God made us closer in likeness to His being than He made anything else, which makes our offense all the greater. (laughs) We weren't even satisfied. You think about the contentment issue in the garden? I've been thinking about contentment this week because it's the psalm I'm preaching on. You think about the contentment issue in the garden? He made us like that. And our first parents said exactly the way we would have said, I think I could be a little bit better. I think I could have a little more. I've got dominion over the whole world. I think I could have dominion over the whole universe. Right? Oh, Our lack of contentment. So this is why our Redeemer had to be truly human. He had to be man. That's why, by the way, I think I've told you all this story before, but I just wanna make sure. When we got our new Trinity Psalter hymnals, and one of the first things I'm doing is looking through them to look at the creeds and the confessions to see which language, which translation they used for particular phrases, because we've all memorized them a little bit differently. The easiest way you hear that is in what? The Lord's Prayer, right? Somebody's always going to say sins. Somebody else is always going to say trespasses. Somebody else is going to say debts. That's the way we roll. So I'm flipping through and I'm, I'm looking. And, and I get to the Nicene Creed. And I was, I, I was disappointed because there's an opportunity in the Nicene Creed where the word man appears, where you don't have to use the word man because it is talking about mankind. And it's saying that God uh, uh, for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and was made man. Well, what he was actually made is human, is the, is, is the point. And you said, well, man. So then it repeats in just a second, who for us men and for our salvation. And I was like, no, you don't need the word men there. You could just say for us, because it's men and women. And it's like, that's just an unnecessary use of man. So I did what I do. I called and complained. And uh, I know a couple guys on the editorial committee. And I said, hey, why did you choose this? I get, and do you know what they said? They said, we need people to make the connections in their brain. He was made man so that for us men, he could be our salvation. And and that word connection was important enough to them that they added the word to put it in there. And I thought, that's actually really good. (laughs) That's really good because it's not insignificant that he became man, that he became human. Why not? Because we're human too. We're And nothing else would have worked. He, God, became angel and for our salvation. Nope, doesn't work. He, God, takes on cat flesh, becomes feline for our salvation. Wouldn't work, right? You know, a cat wouldn't lay down its life for you anyway. Who are you kidding? <laughs> we needed a savior to become man. And because our sin is infinite, we needed a Savior who was infinite. Even a man who doesn't commit his own sins still has original sin. Even a man who somehow was exempted from original sin and doesn't commit his own sin and he is absolutely morally spotless and he's ready to lay down his life, he's still finite. He's he's one man. He could do a one-for-one exchange. He could have saved one of you. I'll let you draw straws and figure out who it would be. But we needed man, infinite. And that's why Jesus had to be both. So Lord's Day 6 has more questions along these same lines. Why Jesus had to be God and man. Why does it spend so much time on this? If if you are talking about a heresy from about A.D. 40 to 2023, if you're just going to pick a random heresy in the church, there's about an 80% chance it has to do with the natures of Christ. All the Lutheran satire videos that you guys like about... Pretty much all of those heresies that he names are nature of Christ problems. I know he's trying to describe the Trinity, but where he goes wrong is you just muddle up Jesus' human nature or his divine nature. This is really tough to get right because we want him to be one or the other, because we want to put him in a box and think about him being more like us. (laughs) And he's exactly like us in his humanity, except without sin. And he's exactly like God in his divinity because he is God and he is man. He's not like man. He's not like God. He is man and he is God. And that distinction, like versus is heresy, there's, there's, there's thousands of them. And so that's why there's so much focus on these particular questions and why Christ needed to be the way that he does. Scripture talks about the Savior First, in very shadowy, less detailed terms. And then, by the time you get to the epistles in Revelation, it's pretty clear about Jesus and about the Savior being God and man. But what you don't want to say, because it's incorrect, is that Scripture doesn't teach us about the Savior or even about this dual nature until the New Testament. Jesus should not have been a surprise. What it took to save us should not have been a surprise. What was required of the Messiah should not have been a surprise to people who were reading their Bibles. Of course, you needed the Holy Spirit to understand it, and so we see why that was different. Who's got Genesis three fifteen? Does that tell you every detail about the gospel? No. But it gives you the broad brush strokes, doesn't it? There's going to be a seed of Eve, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. It will cost him something. It will hurt. The serpent will not just roll over and die. But the serpent will be crushed by the seed of Eve. And that concept is unfolded more and more throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And then uh, the doors of clarity are thrown open with Christ. These two themes, you see it in a lot of the Psalms, especially the kingship Psalms. And you say, well, who's this talking about, David or Jesus? Yes. And sometimes you will read things like in today's Psalm, where it's feels very comfortably about David. And then you get to one line and you're like, David shouldn't have been so confident when he said that. That, that, no. Where David uh, in this morning psalm is confident that the Lord will never let his Holy One see corruption. He's saying that my body will not rot in the grave. On what level is that true? Well, for David, it's true only because at the word level, it's true for Christ, (laughs) Christ's body did not rot in the grave, which is why David should have any confidence whatsoever in his body. David didn't know how God was going to do it. He just believed that God was going to do it. All of this is there in the Old Testament. It just, it, God makes it more clear over time. So then Lord's Day 7 deals with how in the world can you get from Jesus the Savior to us the saved? One option is universalism. This is question 20. Is everybody saved? What's the answer? No. No. Because in God's economy, salvation comes by something. <laughs> and the tw- uh, question 21 gets to the something. Faith. Only those who by a true faith are engrafted into him and Receive all his benefits are saved. You cannot be saved outside of Christ. That's a controversial statement, too. When we go out into the world, don't that, that something? Somebody got in trouble on Twitter this week for saying that. Some famous person, politician, quoted scripture there's one name under heaven and earth by which anyone will be saved. And the response was fast and furious that that is the most. Bigoted, closed-minded, you know, hateful statement. You get her blah blah blah. So she was, she was fired, by the way. Oh, she's fired. Great, <laughs> fabulous. And then people came out and said she didn't mean her to be fired, but what she said was hateful. Yay! So don't expect that you can go into the world and read Bible verses <laughs> without having the knives come out for you. So again, back to purposes of the Catechism. You could read. Let's, let's say you gave somebody, we have all these uh, copies of the Gospel of John to give out to people. You're supposed to, by the way, have a stack of those in your life to give to people. Somebody reads the Gospel of John and they come back to you with a statement like that and they say, what in the world is this bigoted nonsense? I mean, it's fine if Christianity's right for you. You're saying Christianity is the only way to be saved? Well, the catechism can help you answer that. Because you're going to want to go some places outside of John. You're going to go, want to go some places outside of that verse. You're going to want to think through some questions about what it means to be saved. And the catechism will help you with those. We're saved by faith. What is faith? 21 uh, adults, if you're going to selectively memorize the Heidelberg catechism and not memorize the whole thing, 21 is a good one to have in your arsenal. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a firm confidence, which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, and only for the sake of Christ's merits. All right, let's unpack that paragraph for just a minute. What is true faith? True faith is two parts. One by me and one by God. Now the one by me is brought about by God, but go with me here for a minute. The one by me is a sure knowledge. I have to know certain things to be true. Why do I know they are true? Because God said them. Why do I believe God? Because he changed my heart and made me believe God. (laughs) That's why I say our ability to do it is all of God. But we are doing a thing. And the thing we are doing is having this knowledge. God does not magically put in our brain the sentences of the Apostles' Creed. God changes our heart so that when we read the sentences of the Apostles' Creed, And we begin to understand what they mean. We believe them. That's the part God has worked in us. And so one part is this sure knowledge. I hold for truth what he has revealed in his word. Why is it true? Because God said it. It's not true because I want it to be true. It's not true because it's convenient for me. It's not true because it's what I learned growing up. It is true because God said it. And that's such a a wonderful place to be because if you should only believe something because it's what you were taught growing up, then you should never examine it very carefully. If the most important thing is for you to never change your mind, don't think about it too much, <laughs> don't subject it to too much scrutiny. And that's the way some people approach Christianity is that we just shouldn't expose our brains to very much outside of what we were taught because all of it is just too risky and it's a threat and we might decide to believe something else. And if the reason you believe it is because your parents believe it, you will eventually believe something else. You will. There's no reward in life in your 30s, 40s, 50s for believing what your parents believe. There's no badge someone gives you. It doesn't give you a raise at work. Nobody says, oh, I want to be in the friend group of people who cling to their parents' outdated beliefs. That doesn't exist. So what will happen is you'll start looking at why do I believe what I believe? And if the answer is to make people like me, then you can believe some of those things. If the answer is because it helps me get ahead in the world and make more money and do better academically, then you'll believe those things. But if you believe what you believe because God said it, Then you spend the rest of your life in a rather relentless pursuit of what did God really say? You want to read more. You want to study more. You want to hear more teaching. You want to pray more for more wisdom. You want to wrestle with the scriptures. You want to consider other perspectives because what you're trying to figure out is what did God really say? Because in the end, that's all that matters. That is the happiest intellectual way to live, by the way. It is the most free way for your mind to live, is to settle on an ultimate proposition that what God says is true. And now I can have absolute confidence in the things God has said, and I can have a tremendous amount of humility that. I don't know everything God has said. And sometimes I've looked at things that God said and I've interpreted them wrong. And I've needed people to come alongside me and help teach me. And that's growth in the Christian life. It's just, it's amazing intellectually if you will live there compared to the stress of saying, I believe what I believe because it provides these other benefits. And I've, isn't that what you see in the modern world today? People are freaking out. Why? Because they don't know if the thing that they believed five minutes ago is still okay to believe or if it's going to get them fired this week. That is not a peaceful way to live. That's horrible. To have to spend every day looking over your shoulder to see if you're still allowed to think the thing that you were taught to think five days ago, which was different than the thing you were taught to think five days before that. Times change. No. Ultimate truths, eternal truths with God. So part one, we have to know something. I hold for truth all that God revealed in his word. And then two, firm confidence, which the Holy Spirit works in my heart. So the Holy Spirit gave us that uh, understanding of the words that were on the page, but the Holy Spirit did something else. And this something else is part of true faith. That not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given of God, merely of grace, and only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's the peace of soul. (laughs) If the first half of this is the peace of mind, where does truth come from and how can I know anything? That's only half of faith. The other half of faith is the peace of soul that when I looked at that law, the way we did last week, and I said, woe to me, I'm undone. Christ, death, paid for my sins. Not sins in general, not sins in abstract, not only for others, but for me also it says. Christ paid for my sin and... More than that, Christ gave me his righteousness. Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. So I'm not just neutral before God. I am as righteous standing before God as Jesus Christ is. Sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? The the gospel is (laughs) mind-blowing. When God the Father looks at you by faith he sees an Alex who is as righteous and sinless as Christ. You want to know why they write hymns like, and can it be that I should gain? Because that ought to be the first sentence out of our, how can that be? And the answer is there. Merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's righteousness. He did it because he loved the Son. The Father did it because he loved the Son. The Son did it because he loved the Father. The Holy Spirit is that bond and union of love between them that comes out in power and makes it effective in us. And the Trinity is so filled with love, we are the recipients of their love for one another. And it's all of Christ. Christ's merit's not ours. Well, yeah, but you were a little better than that guy. All of Of Christ. Yeah, but you knew more all of Christ. Yeah, God looked into the future and saw that you wouldn't be as bad all of Christ. Every single thing you try to add to that. It wasn't a super great book, but the um, uh, Tullian Trevian book uh, uh, Jesus plus everything equals nothing? Is that what it's called? Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Yeah, he got the equation right. Because Jesus plus anything you possibly add, you've ruined the gospel. You broke it. Jesus plus I, Jesus plus God, Jesus plus nothing. That's everything. All right, questions. We have some time for questions. So two natures and this is why. Go ahead. Right. And then the fiducia, piece is what you're talking about, where it's like your trust is completely on Christ. Um, of course, that goes up and down throughout life, but I found that threefold description to be a helpful way to yeah. think about. Yeah, it's not just knowing the information; it's knowing that it's true. Yeah. That's why I think that, that's why I think 21 is such a great question. It's not just knowing the information; it's knowing that it is true, right. which can only come of God. Um, one question I realized we should have answered, and I got a bunch of Bible verses lined up to read. So if that's the case, the gospel's so glorious, the truths of God are so true, why do some believe and some don't? The real question is why does anyone believe at all? The way you don't want to approach this question Is by thinking at it through the lens of unfairness, as though it was equally likely that a person would have believed or not believed, and God drew some lines and said, Nope, you're allowed to believe and you're not allowed to believe, and that's the way it is. You remember the whole total depravity discussion last week? Your brains are broken, your hearts are broken. Your reasoning and will are broken. Your loves are wrong. Your priorities, misordered. All of it. So now, take that person, that totally depraved person. Let's pretend it's not you, because you're totally fine. You're not depraved. But that other person, who's totally depraved. And God says, you are a sinner in need of a savior, and there is no other way to be saved except by complete trust in me. Die to yourself, and follow me, and you will be saved what does that totally depraved person say back to God? Don't need, it. don't need it? Don't want it? No. Kind of offended that you asked. What percentage of totally depraved people say that back to God? 100%. All of them say it back to God. You know what the real question is? It's not why are some saved and some not. The real question is, how was anyone saved? How was anyone saved? Who's got John 3 3? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And read verse 5 too, Alex. One is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Who's got 1 Corinthians two, fourteen? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Who's got Ephesians 2, 5? By grace you have been saved. And Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Why are you saved? Why is anyone saved? Because God, out of his good pleasure, made you alive. God never took a single person who was dead and wanted to be alive and said, no, you're not allowed to be alive. You know why? Because there's no such person. There's no such person. Go walk through a cemetery and tell me how many dead bodies you hear yelling, please, please, please make me alive again. It's not a thing. And so it is with spiritual death. Nobody in spiritual death is saying, I wish I was alive. Nobody. The only reason we say, I wish I was alive, is because we're in the moment where Christ is making us alive and our eyes are opened to Our depravity to the death that we are in. And that's why it's such a perfect, unbreakable chain of how someone is saved. And it starts with that law, with that conviction of sin we talked about last week. Because someone who is truly convicted of sin can only be so by God. The only one who can open their eyes to their guilt before God is God. And so it cannot fail. Someone whose eyes are open to that guilt and conviction will be saved. And that's what these questions are walking us through. When true knowledge of these things is formed in the mind, it cannot fail to lead to conviction. He will realize his need of salvation. Knowledge in the regenerate man always leads to conviction. And this finally brings one to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. One last thing on this. It says, one, one question that's often asked, how much do I need to know and believe in order to be saved? What's the answer to that? How much, if faith is this knowledge and belief come together, how much knowledge and belief do you need in order to be saved? Ah, it's a tough one. The answer in principle is... All that God has revealed to me in his word. You need to know all that God has revealed to you. The qu- so, thief on the cross. How much time did he have? How, how much was revealed to him? <laughs> Mustard seed, right? Tiny bit. And what was required of him? That. That's what was required of him. That knowledge and belief was required of him because it was revealed to him. You grow up in the church, you spend decades and decades in the church, it's bigger. That's why we should be continually returning to the word, continually asking God to give us wisdom and to lead us. We are to believe everything God tells us. That will be required of us. And so we go search and seek for more and more and more.